Hello and welcome to the Waverton Why Invest podcast. We have the great pleasure today of being joined by Stefan Reinwald, our Head of Equity Research. He heads up our team looking at Japanese equities after an esteemed career analysing the region, both FNC and at CLSA. Uh, he joined us in 2018. We're very lucky to be joined by him today to give us insights into his current views on Japan. Just before we begin, Stefan, it'd be really interesting to hear about how you ended up being a Japanese equity analyst and what led you to this role. Okay, thanks, Alexandra. It's a long story, but basically it started when I was at university at the time when Japan was booming and the biggest Japanese market for warrants were in Germany. And when I was in university in Germany, I extra financed some of my expenditure investing in Japanese warrants which was very good until 1989, and then turned a bit sour. But uh, I never lost my love for investing in Japan, and I had the opportunity to join Foreign and Colonial in 94 at the Japanese team, working for great people, and I had a great mentor. And uh, I never looked back and did Japanese equities, investment in Japanese equities, and analyzing Japanese equities since 94. I also had the opportunity to live in the country where I was investing in from 2002 to 2008, and CLSA, and then subsequently returned to the buy side, working for a Hong Kong-based and Singapore-based sister company hedge fund before joining Waverton in 2018. Fascinating and varied career, Stefan. Be really helpful for our listeners who might be uninitiated in being an investor into Japanese markets, just to give a backstory about investing in Japan and the reputation that it has. Japan has been a difficult market. Basically, when I invested in Japanese warrants, it was really the peak of the market. And the Nikkei as the leading index, or as well as topics, have yet to recover to these levels from 1989. It was, however, fascinating because Japan was going through a major change after the bubble burst. Bubble bursting meaning the Imperial Palace in Tokyo was worth more than California in 1989. That caused a big balance sheet recession, both in the corporate side as well as the financial side. And Japan was restructuring for 10 years. That ended up in the first financial crisis in Japan in the late 90s, followed by a recapitalization of Japanese banks in 2002. And driven by former Prime Minister Koizumi, Japan embarked in some meaningful change. And since then, we had some good times in Japan, some less good times, especially after the Lehman shock and the Tohoku earthquake. But nevertheless, Japan, in my opinion, has very much turned the corner. And I can give you a couple of reasons why later. But so far, Japan has been a difficult place to make money over the long run, but stock picking has proved to be very successful with some of the stocks up significantly even since the peak of the bubble. I think your point about challenging periods in Japan is definitely something that some of our clients have felt. And sometimes when we talk about Japan with our clients, there is a degree of reticence about the opportunities there, but also some of the risks. What do you think has changed now? What about the story do you think makes it something that our clients should be thinking about and taking more of an interest in now? I think one has to go back to the early 2000s, after the aforementioned second financial crisis and the recapitalization of Japanese banks, Prime Minister Koizumi came in and promoted reform and change. Now, this is when you had a very strong Japanese stock market with lots of foreign participation. However, this was all based on hope. And only 2006 and 7, you had the first green shoots of corporate governance improvement, of shareholder value focus of increased dividends and share buybacks. This came to an abrupt halt when the Lehman crisis came. 
and Japan was sort of prevented from being a full recovery when the Tohoku earthquake hit. This is when the year after Prime Minister Abe came in for the second time and he promoted again change and reform, famously labeled the three errors, which was corporate reform, which was improvement in corporate governance, which was monetary stimulus, and which was fiscal consolidation. Again, the market rallied very strongly from 2012 to 2015, again, based on hope. And everybody was a bit put off by Japanese equities after the strong rally in technology in the US and Japan kind of sailed into the sunset of irrelevance. However, the biggest change now is that these initiatives that have been put into place a corporate governance code and its various iterations, a stewardship code and its various iterations, and changes to corporate behavior as to shareholder return, very meaningful share buybacks, very meaningful increase in dividends, again, change on board level as to corporate governance. These are all now factual evidences. This is no longer hope or the hope for reform. This is actually really happening. And recently, the Tokyo Stock Exchange, again, pointed out that corporate Japan in the next step forward needs to line out very clearly the relationship between a corporate's return on invested capital and weighted average cost of capital. And if this was a negative spread and the stock is trading below a fair value or below book, corporates would need to address this, devise a plan, implement the plan, communicate on the progress of the plan. And again, this attracted foreign investors to Japanese equities as, again, Change is for real now, and change is actually factual, and one can prove that. So I think this is really a very positive development. So twice before, you had hope that things are turning better. Now we've got real factual evidence that things are turning the right way, or already progressing the right way. And are we seeing significant moves from foreign investors into Japan? Because I know that's one of the key things that drives the market movements there. It was quite interesting, because 2012 to 2015, you had a very strong inflow into Japanese equities by foreign investors. That was all withdrawn until March 2023. And only after the TSE again stepped to the plate and demanded from corporate Japan to implement these changes based on return on capital, on corporate governance and cost of capital, foreign shareholders returned to Japan and saw buying into the summer months. And the magnitude is still very small. So I think once foreigners realize as time goes by, that these changes are for real, that the trend is going in the right direction, there's much, much more buying power from foreign investors. And are you seeing changing attitudes amongst management teams within Japan when it comes to things like disclosure and ESG and other factors that have been big drivers in the US and European equity markets, but haven't been so much of a feature in Japan? Disclosure, definitely. No doubt. Board structure, definitely. I, as a proxy for corporate governance, Align with the shareholder interest, definitely. Not the entire market, but the good and investable part of the market. And also ESG. Japan had to step up to the plate, join the international community. Although the biggest improvements, again, have been in the G, but there's also quite a lot of focus on the environmental part and the social part. So, yeah, there have been changes. There have been promising changes, and they are factual. One of the other big trends you've talked about that I found really interesting is about the corporate simplification process that's gone on getting rid of subsidiaries, et cetera. Could you talk a bit more about that trend that you've seen and maybe some examples of companies that have done it? Yeah, I think the biggest, and that comes again to efficient capital allocation as part of the improvement in ROIC. A good example has been Hitachi. 
they had more than 20 subsidiaries 25 years ago. The financial crisis in 2008, 2009 almost saw the company going bankrupt, and they needed to change their attitude towards how to allocate capital within their group. As a result, since then, Hitachi has sold off or bought in all of its listed subsidiaries. And as a result, returns have improved. As a result, the stock has performed very well. And this is just one example of Blue Chip Japan. You can see this in many other cases as well, where corporate structures are being simplified. Parent companies are deciding what to do with listed subsidiaries, either to buy them in or to sell them off, but also making the capital allocation based on core competence, investing in core competence, divesting in non-core areas, a very, very interesting capital efficiency improvement investment thesis. And that really goes through the entire space as to sectors and industries. Talking about sectors, you mentioned earlier that the US stock market in particular benefited from this huge technology trend that we've seen over the last 20 years or so. I know that there are Japanese companies really exposed to some of the trends that are making the front pages today, like AI and electric vehicles. Could you talk about some of the interesting stories in Japan where you can get access to those mega trends? Japan really is sort of the picks and shovels of those two big trends like artificial intelligence and electrification of the auto industry or the energy transition. So they are very much exposed to electronic components, to materials used in electronics, materials used in the electrification and the development of smart grids. So they are really sort of the suppliers to large companies that are producing the chips like a TSMC, for example, or for NVIDIA, the batteries that are being produced for electric vehicles from a Panasonic or also from a BYD. So they are the ingredients that go into these end products, and they have overwhelming market share in most of these fields. So Japan provides an indirect exposure, I would call it the picks and shuffles, of the end products of these big trends. And looking at the vehicles specifically, are there any interesting vehicle investment ideas that you've got at the moment? It's still kind of controversial, but it seems that the market are coming around to the multi-path approach of Toyota Motor. They are promoting very much hybrid, plug-in hybrid, and uh, until recently, now full battery vehicles, where the lineup will be complemented by a raft of launches of new vehicles. So multi-path, I think, is important because you need various things that have to be fulfilled, which is the regional infrastructure, the regional government support for electrification and the build out thereof, affordability. It is really a way of providing vehicles to the entire world. So if you want to be a global car manufacturer, you really need a multi-path approach. An electric vehicle in India still has a worse footprint than a hybrid vehicle, simply because the underlying energy is still 70% coming from legacy coal. So it is not that straightforward that an electric vehicle in all parts of the world is carbon neutral. So I think this is a very interesting one. It's not yet in the price. I think people are just coming around to the fact that multi-path is the way forward and that full electric vehicles as all eggs in one basket will be very problematic, especially as competition heats up. Talking about price and valuation, Stefan, have you seen uh, closing in the discount of the Japanese stock market as we've seen some of these changes more structurally coming through? I think it's just started, really. I mean, Japan was always cheap. That's why we never really used this argument as the sole argument why to look at Japan or why to invest in Japan. But undoubtedly, as soon as people are waking up, this trend is for real. 
you can find factual evidence. I think as foreign money will flow in, these discounts will narrow and Japan should outperform. And presumably you mentioned the importance of selective stock picking as some of these companies that you're interested in at the start of this process sort of move through improvements in corporate governance and focus on returns. Presumably that means there are going to be more ideas further down the track coming through over the next few years. There are many companies that are really interesting, companies that fulfill our four criteria, which is having a sustainable competitive advantage, having the ability to generate future free cash flow, where shareholder interests are aligned with management, and companies that offer the right valuation considering risk and return. And I think the number of companies that fulfill these criteria are quite ample in Japan. And I think there, is a, there are some very interesting opportunities out there. One trend that I've also found interesting, and I see this anecdotally with a number of my friends who've traveled to Japan over the last few years, there's been a big uptick in bound tourism into Japan, hasn't there? Also interested to hear how COVID has impacted that and whether that's returned to its previous peaks. I think this is an interesting point because when I lived in Japan, there were around 2 million tourists coming to Japan per year. And under the first Abe administration, he made it his goal to make Japan a destination country. And he was talking about 20 million tourists per year in 10 years' time. And when I was living there, I thought there's no way this number could go up 10 times from 2 million to 20 million. Pre-COVID, we almost had 30 million tourists arriving in Japan. So there was a strong trend. Japan opened up. Language barriers came down. Japan is a beautiful country, great culture, great nature, a safe society, and just a very, very good place to travel. Now, I think after COVID hit, inbound tourism fell to zero. And this is an interesting opportunity because with the exception of Chinese tourists, the rest is back to pre-COVID levels. And with the yen supportive, making Japan an extremely cheap country to go and have holiday, but to go to Japan in general, I think will trigger the next wave of inbound tourism that will, of course, help the domestic economy. Do you think it's economic weakness in China that's holding back that bit of tourism? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. It's sort of the problems that China faces, but also for Chinese tourists, in particular package tourism, it really just opened up. So it, it is at the very, very beginning, whereas other countries have been traveling to Japan much earlier. So I think China lags behind and also faces a bit of domestic headwinds. If you take a three-year view, I think tourism will be a very good supportive trend for the Japanese domestic economy. Stefan, you've painted a really positive picture about some of the opportunities for particular companies within Japan. When you look at Japan for 2024, what are the risks on the horizon that you think could potentially derail that investment thesis that you've put forward? I think the biggest risk is deflation. Japan has been living with the psychology of deflation, where one yen is always worth more tomorrow than today, sort of holding back spending. With inflation now looking more sticky, that psychology might have well broken and which could provide a very, very good underlying support. Interest rates probably will go up from a very, very low level. And more importantly, wage growth looks pretty solid already 23, and as the indications are, also 2024. 20, if this is the case, the investment thesis is really strong. If we didn't break the psychology of deflation and Japan drifts back into a deflationary mindset, negative interest rate policy will prevail 
And I think this will be the biggest risk to a positive investment thesis. So watch out for wage growth, watch out for higher interest rates and modestly higher interest rates. If this unfolds, it's really positive. If we drift back into the psychology of deflation, I think uh, one needs to revisit the top-down view on investing in Japanese equities. That doesn't mean that they are not interesting bottom-up opportunities, but that might well scare foreign capital away again from Japan. Presumably, that is the top of the list for the politicians and central bankers to try and keep the show on the road, as it were, from an inflationary perspective. Um, we've seen many evidence in particular. So, for example, beer prices in Japan haven't changed since uh, 2008. And now we've seen two price increases over the last 18 months. You can see that there is a positive trend towards modest, manageable inflation of, say, give or take 2%, which is also the central bank's target. But the central bank is also very much focusing on wage growth. And wage growth at large corporations is strong. We're talking 5% plus. But wage growth at small, medium-sized enterprises is still relatively limited to one plus X percent. So we need to see this broadening out. And if that's the case, I think the combination of higher prices of wage growth will stimulate consumption and will break the psychology of deflation or will confirm that the psychology of deflation is broken. Fantastic. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your outlook on Japan and a view on some of the things that have changed over the last few years, making Japan more interesting from a stock selection perspective. We look forward to seeing how 2024 plays out and we hope that you'll join us again on the podcast soon. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Why Invest podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please do like, subscribe and share it with friends and colleagues. We do hope you join us again. The information provided does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.